Good evening. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll begin reading in verse 11. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Please stand while we hear God's word together. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh, of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a holy word. Lord, we do not deserve to speak upon it, but Lord, you have given us this opportunity. Lord, we pray that you would be honored, glorified, and that your name would be lifted up. Lord, prevent me from saying anything that's dishonoring, displeasing, or confusing. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted, that Christ would be lifted up. Lord, that you would show us our sins, show us how we can walk in a way that pleases you. Help us to be what you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. How do you deal with the pressures of the world around you? How do you live like a Christian in an ever-increasingly hostile world? We might not ask these exact questions, but I'm sure you've thought about these things and about the pressure that the world puts on you. We're constantly being thrown up against decisions that impact our lives, our church, our family, and our culture and the community we live in. Decisions either to go with the world or to go with the word. What does the Bible say about all of this? Paul addresses these issues in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, 2 Corinthians follows, of course, on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, he had dealt with sin in the camp and with other issues that were there. Division and divisiveness and all sorts of confusion, doctrinal confusion. In 2 Corinthians has other themes as well. Starts out with comfort in affliction, that God is the God of all comfort. He deals with how to deal with the sinning brother who had repented, and he deals with other topics that were needed. But 
it's also kind of a defense of Paul and his ministry. There were probably false teachers or some in the Corinthian church who were influencing them to question Paul, to attack him, or question his authority and apostleship. Paul doesn't just make that like a small thing. To him, it's important. His apostleship is important because his message hinges upon it. His, the authority of his message, if his apostleship is being questioned, then the authority of his message is also in question. So Paul writes to deal with this, but he also writes the Corinthians out of his love and concern for them, and we see that all throughout. We see the glory of the gospel. We see the glory of the love of the pastor, the Apostle Paul. Paul has just described the intensity, the passion, and the reality of his sacrificial ministry in chapters 5 and in the beginning of chapter 6. He describes himself as working with God in the work of the gospel. The love of Christ is compelling him. It's constraining him. It's motivating him to preach to others because he knows the terror of Christ, of the Lord. He knows that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The new birth within his heart had changed his heart and he didn't see anybody the same anymore. Before it was all about how he could control people, but now it's how he can love people with the gospel of Christ. He was involved in the work of being an ambassador for Christ. That was what he did. That was the, his title or his work. God in Christ, he said, had done an amazing work in verse 19 of chapter 5. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him." Here is the glorious truth of substitution, the glorious truth of justification, the glorious truth of the atonement, the glorious truth of what Christ has done, and that's what Paul is preaching. That's what he is there for. That's what his work is. He's not simply another preacher, but he was an ambassador for Christ. So Paul was involved in this glorious work of taking this good news everywhere he went. And then in chapter 6, he talks about his ministry. He talks about what his ministry looked like from day to day. He shows the proofs of his ministry. And he says, I was careful not to be an offense to you. I was careful not to be a stumbling block. But in all things, approving ourselves. And he talks about the proofs of his ministry. The proofs of his ministry in things like we wouldn't think of them. Not a nice suit and a nice car and a nice paycheck and a a good following and great conferences. 
but he talks about patience, afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments. This was the proof of Paul's ministry. Those who follow Christ will suffer with him. But not just that he suffered, but that he suffered faithfully. He was by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. That in the midst of this suffering and this affliction and this self-sacrifice, he was giving himself in love for for the flock. He was serving faithfully. So here is a record all the way to to verse 10, of a faithful minister of the gospel. We'll read from verse 6 to 10. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. This is the picture of a faithful pastor. Paul had been transparent with them. He says that in verse 11. He says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. He's saying, we have expressed ourselves fully to you. We have opened ourselves to you. We have not hidden anything. We have not held back anything. We have not, um, we have not been deceitful and, and having guile and trickery like you have or others have accused us of. But our mouth is open. We have spoken plainly boldly and lovingly and openly and we have shared our hearts with you his heart had been wide open he said our heart is enlarged he was not holding back in his love and his care for his sheep however there was a problem their hearts were closing to paul Their hearts were closing to the gospel that Paul had preached. Their hearts were closing to the God of the gospel that Paul had preached. They did not have much room for Paul anymore. So the first imperative, we see five imperatives in this passage. And Lord willing, I want to look at three of them, hopefully, today. And then two next time when I preach in November the 23rd, if God wills. The first imperative we see here is open your hearts. Paul says, open your hearts. He says, you are not straightened or restricted in us, but you are straightened or restricted in your own bowels. Bowels means your inner parts, your affections, your heart. The Hebrews would talk about, and maybe the Greeks would talk about the bowels as the source of the affections. And he says, now for a recompense in the same, since I have opened my heart to you, Corinthians, in response, I speak as unto my children. Be also enlarged. Open your hearts to me and to the gospel. Paul pleads with them to open their hearts to God, to his word, and to his preacher. As we go through this passage, we will see that this is a key to what 
goes on ahead of, ahead of us. In Proverbs chapter 23, 26, the, the wisest man in the world besides Christ, of course, says, My son, give me your heart. This should be a desire and a goal for every father is to gain the hearts of our children and to make sure that we do have the hearts of our children and if we don't, to pursue their hearts. God pursues our hearts. I remember Randy preached on, Who has your heart? God is pursuing our hearts, and He knows when our hearts are getting closed to Him. And sometimes He sends a faithful pastor like Paul to say, Open your hearts. What does he mean by open your heart? The idea is be responsive to God. God has loved you through Christ. He has loved you through faithful shepherds. Don't close your heart to him. Don't clam up and harden your heart. Paul says respond to my open heartedness by opening your heart to me. Well, what was it that had gotten their hearts closed to Paul and even to God? We see it as we go along. They were making unequal yoke, yokes with the world. They had opened their hearts to the world, and that had closed their heart to God. 1 John 2 says, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have an open heart to the world and an ho- open heart to the Lord Amen. and to His Word and to His faithful preachers. The second imperative that we see here is, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This comes from the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, where it says, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. God is commanding the Israelites not to plow with a cow <coughs> or a, an ox and a, and a donkey together. Don't put them on the same plow. There were maybe purposes for this, maybe for the animals themselves out of compassion for them, Maybe for the more efficiency of the agriculture, I don't know. But God is teaching them a lesson. And He's teaching them a lesson about separation. He's teaching them a lesson about not mixing, not combining. And He's been talking about that in verse 9. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, mixing different seeds. Verse 11, thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts, woolen and linen together. A lot of times we have clothes that are different kinds, you know, polyester and cotton. These laws don't apply to us in the sense of literally we can't mix different kinds of threads together. But they still apply to us because we take these principles like Paul did and we say this points to the purity and separation and not mixing holiness with sin. So it still we still applies to us but we have to understand it in a new covenant 
context. And that's what Paul is doing. The principle that Paul drew from this passage didn't have to do with cows and donkeys. Remember when Paul talked about the support of pastors and he said, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And he says, does, does God say this just for, for oxen? Does God just care about oxen? He says, no, he cares about us. He cares about us. He said this for our sakes. And so Paul applies that Old Testament passage to New Covenant believers and shows us that even there, feeding the oxen, letting them eat when they tread out the corn, points to something that we can do in the New Covenant, caring for our pastors, providing for them. And here, not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, points to something in the New Covenant. So what is he talking about when he says unequally yoked together? We get the point, we get the picture, we see that big oxen and that little donkey and we see the yoke kind of tilted like that and we see them kind of struggling down the way. We can just imagine. But what's he talking about? Many take this passage and apply it to marriage. Others say, well, this has nothing to do with marriage, only with idolatry. Because Paul is dealing with idolatry, he doesn't mention marriage at all. My contention that it is that it applies to both. If you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3 an essential part of the separation of the children of Israel was that they were not to make marriages with the heathen around them. Deuteronomy 7.3 says, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. I don't see a dichotomy or a separation of marriages and idolatry here. It's saying it's basically the same thing, not the same thing, but if you marry into the world, you're going to worship with the world. We see the same thing happening in the book of Ezra. Ezra even goes and pulls out the hair and and he gets intense over the marriages, intermarriages of God's people with the world around them. You can't really separate the two. You can't separate your marriage from your God completely. Marriage is the deepest personal relationship that you're going to have. And your relationship with your God is the deepest spiritual relationship that you'll have. So they will have interplay. The one affects the other. There is a connection. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 39 said that 
a single person is free to marry, but only in the Lord. Some have tried in the past, and we hear of some that try, to marry someone who is not in the Lord, to witness to them, to convert them, to be a light to them. But often, it works the other way around. The darkness swallows up the light. The believer goes downhill. But this isn't just talking about marriage. I believe marriage is an application, but it goes way beyond marriage, and it applies to any union or close affinity with the world. And as we were talking about marriage, I want to encourage every young person to seek out and pray for a godly spouse. Don't be content and don't settle for the second best. Don't settle for someone who's not committed to Christ. Don't don't settle for that. But pray for someone, a man or a woman, after God's own heart. And wait for that person. May God give you that person, if He will for you to marry. So this union or this unequal yoke goes way beyond marriage. It refers to any union, I said, or any close affinity with the world. We are to be friends to all, right? We are to be friends to all. We are to be kind to them. We are to be hospitable to them. We are to pray for them. We are to reach them with the gospel. We are to show love to others in our community, in our church, in our in our world, even in the jail, wherever we go, the store, workplace. But we are to select our friends that we choose out of the people of God. We are to have our best friends, our close friends, our dear friends to be from Christ's people. Matthew Henry said, we should never choose wicked men and unbelievers for our bosom friends. This will bring us down. Don't join hands with the world. The Apostle Paul is talking about joining in the world's sin, joining in their idolatry, joining in their worship, but not just in an act of worship, but joining in their worldliness, covenanting together and uniting ourselves together with the world, working closely together. A sad but a good illustration of this is in the Old Testament, in the life of a man whom I admire, but whom I also deeply am sorrowful over. His name was King Jehoshaphat. He was a godly king. He was a great king of Judah, but he actually made unholy alliances with the kings of Israel. In the book of 2 Chronicles, if you turn there with me, 2 Chronicles chapter 18, we read what God says about Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and joined affinity with Ahab. 
Now, the word joined affinity actually could be translated, he made a marriage alliance. You see, the, the marriage was involved. This union, this working closely together, this joining up with, he took one of his children and married them to Ahab's children. Well, how did it go for Jehoshaphat in this? He went and fought with Ahab and took part in his battles. And then in chapter 19 and verse 1, And Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. This is after the battle where Ahab died. And Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to king Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. We might think, well, Jehu, you're being kind of tough on Jehoshaphat. He's a good guy. But this is what God said. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. Do you see that? Jehoshaphat is a man who's seeking God. He's preparing his heart. He's setting his heart to seek God. He's doing good things. He's removing the groves, the idolatry out of his land. So he has a heart for holiness. But at the same time, he's compromising with the world. He has married in to Ahab's family. And they're in-laws, so we better work together, right? Chapter 20, verse 35. And after this did, king, did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. Notice it's contrasting him with the, the king of Israel who did very wickedly, and he joined himself. So that's the, the, the essence, really, of this unequal yoke. And he joined himself with him to make ships. You might think, well, they're not doing idolatry, right? They're just making ships. That might be okay, but... There's compromise. He joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eli- Eliezer, the son of Dodava of Marisha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works. And the ships were broken that they were not able to go to Tarshish. You see, there was wrath on Jehoshaphat. There was, his, his work was not successful. They were broken. They were destroyed. And then later on, after he dies, it had serious impact on his children. His son comes into the kingdom, Jehoram, who is married into the, to the daughter of Ahab. And he kills all his his brothers and sisters. And then it says, He wrought that which was evil. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This was through the influence of this unequal yoke. Well, we might think, We understand it because we looked at Jehoshaphat, but the Corinthians may not be thinking about Jehoshaphat right now. So they may ask Paul, why, Paul, why is this such a big deal to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Can't we be a witness this way? 
Paul's not saying we can't be a witness. But he's talking about going beyond being a witness. So Paul gives several reasons. Several arguments or comparisons. There are five different comparisons. Showing that there is no agreement between the believer and the world. Showing that there is no common ground, no no likeness between the believer and the world. There's nothing we have in common. And the first comparison he gives is in verse 14. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? A believer is righteous in Christ. He's been declared righteous in Christ and he has the Spirit of God in him with a desire to live a righteous life. So he has has a standard of righteousness and that's the, the Word of God. That's the law of God written on the heart and also written in the Word and he desires to walk in God's ways. So he has a different standard. He has a different... It results in a different life. But the unbeliever, he is absolutely lawless. This word means lawless, this unrighteousness. And the unbeliever is not governed by God's word, not governed by God's law, not governed by righteousness, but he lives for the moment. He lives for himself. (coughs) And Paul says, how can this work together, this righteousness and this unrighteousness? This righteousness and this lawlessness. There's no fellowship here. The second comparison Paul gives is, What communion hath light with darkness? Light. We were children of darkness. We were in the kingdom of darkness, but we were translated or transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of light. So we're in a different world, the world of light. And we have that light within us, and God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. And those who walk in darkness, they, they lie. Those who say they have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, they lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. This is the world we live in, the world of light. The world of not hiding, but confessing to God, confessing to one another, being real, and walking in the light. The light has to do with goodness, righteousness, holiness, truth, honesty, and purity. It refers to the fact that we have a different nature, and we live in a different world. We live in the world that is to come. And not the world that is cursed. The world of darkness. What what communion has light with darkness? None! Well, Paul goes on. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What concord? What agreement or working together? Or what concord has Christ with Belial? A believer has a different master from an unbeliever. We were under the dominion of Satan. We were under his authority, his power, and his dominion. 
But Christ has freed us from that power of Satan. Freed us to serve God. I think of that meeting that Bunyan describes of Christian with Apollyon. And Apollyon says, you're mine. And he's claiming, Apollyon is claiming Christian as his servant that has run away and gone to to Christ. And he says, no, I belong to a different master. We belong to Christ. We are his slaves. To what concord does our master have with the devil. Belial is the devil. Jehoshaphat may have shared his throne with Ahab or Ahaziah. He did wrong to do it. He, did, he sinned against God by joining together, sitting there, and the different prophets are prophesying and all of that. You can read about it sometime if you want. But our king will never join his throne with the devil. He will never join his throne with anyone. He is king of kings and lord of lords. What concord has Christ with the devil? When we join hands with the world, we're mixing Christ and the devil. What part has he that believes with an infidel or an unbeliever? What part has he that believes with an unbeliever. A Christian is a believer. We believe the word. We believe in Christ. We believe the gospel. We believe what Christ has told us, what Christ has done. We trust. We commit. We have faith. We believe the facts, but we also trust in his person and in his work. We commit ourselves and we follow him. But an unbeliever is the definition of the world around us. They have a different perspective. They have a different worldview. They look at life totally differently because they don't believe. That unbelief has clouded their minds and it's totally controlled their thinking, their acting, and their work, their work, and their words and everything. They have a different faith and a different life in result of their faith. What part has he that believes with an unbeliever? And the fifth comparison is what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. God's temple in the Old Testament went from the Garden of Eden where God dwelt with his people, Adam and Eve, and where he walked with them and talked with them. That was, in a sense, God's temple because where he manifested his presence with them and showed himself to them. But after they had sinned against God, that temple was closed for business. They were shut out from God's presence and put out of the garden. They could not eat out of the tree of life, and they were sent to toil for their own bread. Well, then God, in his grace and mercy, made first a tabernacle in the wilderness where his presence was beautifully pictured by the the cloud and the fire 
the Shekinah glory of God, dwelling with his people, that God would be with his people, but yet, in a sense, still separate from his people. Because we were just reading in my family devotions in Numbers chapter 1, where it said all the places where the different people of Israel were to camp. And it said these group would camp here, and this group would camp here. And then at the end of the chapter, it has the Levites. And it says the Levites are to camp all around the tabernacle so that the children of Israel will not incur wrath on them. And you say, whoa, what is this? God is holy. And his temple cannot be approached in, this, in, in the Old Testament. It cannot be approached just by anybody. But there had to be this holy people around the holy tabernacle separating the people away from it, showing that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Then we see that beautiful temple that Solomon made, that glorious temple, and then as they dedicate that temple, the cloud comes down and the glory of the Lord comes and they can't even enter the temple because God is there. But then we see something happening in Ezekiel as the temple God gives Ezekiel a vision and he says, there is that, that, that glory of the Lord, that picture of, of the glory of the Lord in the temple and those different animals and beasts and wheels and all sorts of things that it's hard to describe or even to picture in your mind. But it's the glory of God on his throne, right? That was the, 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 the focal point of it. God's glory. Well, the glory was leaving the temple. And the glory left the temple because of the sin of the people. And it was such a sad part of Ezekiel when God's glory leaves the people and leaves the temple. And now we can say Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel. But then Ezekiel goes on to describe a new temple in the end of his book. And that temple is totally different than the temple that was built before. And it's so amazing and it can't be imagined. And then he says that the glory is coming back to the temple. What is that talking about? Is that talking about the millennium when we get to, to you know, have a big temple again in Jerusalem and make some sacrifices? If you believe in that, then you're missing the point. That's talking about this verse. The glory of God coming to rest upon his temple in Ezekiel is talking about this right here. Ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a glorious and a wonderful Wonderful promise. So what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The temple of God had a purpose. It's a building with a purpose. It's not just another house. It's not just another place. But it's a, it's a purpose. And the purpose set apart for God. For his worship. For his glory. For his holiness. And for his majesty. That's the Old Testament temple. And that's the New Testament temple, the people of the living God. <laughs> Already in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has, has developed this doctrine clearly and, and definitely 
in chapter First th- Corinthians chapter three and verse sixteen, he shows that the corporate body of Christ, the people of God, as a as a body, are the temple of God. Notice in verse sixteen, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That word ye is plural. He's saying, you as a corporate body are the temple of God. And then in chapter 6, he goes on even to say that our individual bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. In verse 19 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So as an individual, our bodies, our lives, our souls are temples of God. But also, our corporate gathering, our corporate, the body of Christ is a temple of Christ. Both are true. As a temple of God, we have a different purpose from the world. We're set apart for His glory. Our whole lives are about worship. That is what we were made to do. And that's what we were saved to do. Joining hands with the world defiles our worship. So the answer to each of Paul's questions, each of Paul's comparisons as he goes through these five questions, is no. It's a resounding no. There is no communion. There is no fellowship of righteousness with unrighteousness. There is no communion of light with darkness. There is no concord of Christ with Belial. There is no part of he that believeth with an infidel. There is no agreement of the temple of God with idols. Paul has given us compelling reasons. He didn't just say, don't join with the world and go on his merry way. But Paul gave us compelling reasons. And then he gives us these sweet and precious promises. We already kind of broke the the jar and looked at the promises a little bit, but we want to look at them more. He says here, as God has said, verse 16, I will dwell in them. As God has said, and he's looking back at Old Testament promises that he claims for the new covenant, that he makes, he he understands in a gospel way. These wonderful Old Testament promises find their fulfillment in New Testament gospel reality. Not an absolute word-for-word quotation of these various references, but he kind of mixes and matches different references or quotations here. He says, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a promise. What promises that God has given to us. What sweet and precious promises that the living God would dwell with us. That the living God would dwell 
in us. What a glorious thing. He's referring, I believe, many believe, to Leviticus chapter 26, 11 and 12. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, which states, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Fulfilling Leviticus 26. God is fulfilling it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God never refers to His people as His temple. He has always a separation, kind of, of His people from His temple. They're welcome, but they are to walk carefully. But now, we are the temple of the living God. Also, Christ was the temple as He tabernacled among us. Another passage that he may be referring to is Ezekiel 37, verse 27, which states, My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here is what is called the Emmanuel principle. That word Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. So, God with us. God dwelled with his people. We saw in the Garden of Eden, we saw how he dwelled with his people, or dwelt with his people in the, the temple, and the tabernacle of old. But then we see Christ coming down and dwelling with his people in flesh, in bodily form. Walking with them, talking with them, communing with them. And we think, I'm so jealous of those 12 disciples. I wish I could have been with them and be one of them. But I would just be just as stupid as they were. But I wish that I could hear Christ and spend time with Christ and be with Christ. But you know what? We have it better than they did. Because we have the Word and we have His Spirit within them. We're not apostles and, you know, and all of that. But we have the blessings of the new covenant. We have Christ's words. We have His presence in us and with us by His Spirit. He walks in our midst. This is the reversal of the fall. When God sent the people out of the, Adam and Eve out of the garden, put a flaming sword so they could not return to his special presence, now he says, I will be in your midst. I will be, dwell in you and walk in you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Such loving, endearing language. So how does he dwell in and with us? If Christ has already ascended up into glory, he's already up there, how can he be with us and down here at the same time? The answer is by his Spirit, whom he has given to us. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we, my Father and I, will come unto him and make our abode with him. And he's been talking all along about the Comforter, 
about the Holy Spirit. First John 3.24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. Notice, God dwells in us. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is covenant language. This is the language of a covenant. God has covenanted to be our God and for us to be his people. This isn't just a maybe, hope so language, but it's a covenant, a commitment. And it is reflected in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. Do you read in the book of Psalms when David says, Oh my God. I trust in thee. There's a relationship built on the covenant. As the song says, now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. This is like talking about a marriage. You know, in a marriage, a man says to the woman, I'll be yours for life. And the woman says to the man, and I'll be yours for life. Now, often or sometimes, we pray not, but sometimes the the promise is broken. Sometimes they aren't for life. But that's the goal of marriage, and that's the, the blessing of marriage if it is kept if the promise is kept, but God always keeps His promise. And He makes sure that we do too. Because He says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. In other words, it's not just an outward, um, an outward letter like it was in the Old Testament. They had the, the Ten Commandments. They had it on stone and they had it in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And they knew what was right and they knew what they should do, but they had no inward prompting, except for those who were born again. They had no inward prompting to to lead them. They had no, no desire. I'm talking about the general population of Israel. They were in the old covenant, but they were not converted. But now God says, all of those in the covenant will have my law in their hearts. Amen. David reflects this wonderful truth in Psalm 67, 6, when he says, Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. There's a sense of propriety. There's a sense of we have in a sense, rights to God. Not that we own God, but that He is our God. And He has absolute rights to us. As the songwriter says, His forever, only His, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill 
the loving heart. In the midst of these wonderful, sweet, sweet promises, Paul gives another command, a warning and a call to the people of Corinthians. In verse 17, he takes these promises and he says, because of these great promises, because God lives in you, because God dwells in you, because you're his temple, because God is yours and you are his, come out and be separate. This is the third imperative of this passage. He is referring to Isaiah 52.11, which was a call to the captives of Israel to come out from Babylon. It was a call to them to come out and to come home to Israel. In Isaiah 52.11, I'll read it here. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. It's a call to the children of Israel to come out from Babylon. You know, in a very real sense, the captivity of Israel was a judgment on Israel's worldliness. They married into the, the nations around them. They didn't obey the law of God. They, they, they did worship the idols of the people around them. They did follow their pagan and sinful practices. They did join in with the world, as we see with Jehoshaphat, and as we see with so many others. And God brought them into captivity. But you know what? It was also a real exposure to worldliness for the Jews, who were already worldly in Israel, but they were brought into the center of the worldliest city in the world, Babylon. The powerful world culture that was seeking to assimilate everyone and everything within itself. The idea of Babylon's conquest was that they would come into the place, they would kill as many people as they could, but they would leave some, then they would take some people and transport them and put them somewhere else, and they would take other people and bring them to that place, and they would have no clue. We don't, we're just colonists. So they would completely follow Babylon, right? Follow the, the boss, right? And then they would get some of the really smart people or maybe some young people and bring them to Babylon, some of them they would kill, and others they would say, you're going to be part of us. And they would remake their thinking. They would feed them special food, give them training, make them worship their gods, worship their idols, and they would say, now you're part of us. And so they were changing the whole culture and the whole mindset, the whole religion, the whole everything about everybody else and making them all just like Babylon. That happened to Daniel and his friends. But the thing that was different about Daniel and his friends, it said that there were other guys there too. They were just following along, eat the food, worship the idols, do whatever, you know. But they didn't, they, we don't hear about them. You hear about them? I don't know their names. But Daniel and his friends, they didn't do the same thing. They said, no, can, can, can we eat just vegetables? The guy said, you're crazy. Eating vegetables? You're going to be like rails. 
He said, no, we don't, we don't want to eat this stuff. This is sacrifice to idols. Maybe it's pigs. I don't know what. But it's not. It's, it's going to defile us. And we know the story how Daniel stood against the influence of Babylon. He didn't give in to the training that would make him a Babylonian. The idea was to make everybody in the image of Babylon. And today the world is just the same. In Revelation 18, we won't go there today, maybe next time, but the Apostle John compares the world to Babylon. And he's saying, come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch their sins or you'll partake of their plagues. The world wants to fit us in their mold. They want to make us in their image. They want to make us just like them. They profess that everything is fine with what you believe. You can believe what you want to believe and your truth is good for you. But when your worldview and your God and your book clash with the Babylon of this world, then they get angry. They say, what do you think you are? You think you can tell me what to do? You think you're better than us? What we have to realize is that our enemy is not tame. We are not on neutral ground. The devil does walk about like a roaring lion in 2022, seeking whom he may devour. And the world hates you and wants you to be gone. But meanwhile, they'll try to change you and make you into their image. God has saved you to make you in his image and his likeness. To be like Jesus and not like the world. But the world doesn't like to look at Jesus. The world doesn't like to see Jesus in us. So when a Christian lives a different, a separated life, the world doesn't like it. When a Christian desires to raise his daughters to be keepers at home, the world fights against it. When the world tries, I mean the Christian, I'm sorry, when the Christian tries seeks to be pure and to raise up his children to be pure and teaches them that there is to be no sexual intimacy outside of marriage, the world mocks and despises it. When the godly father seeks to protect his daughter, the world seeks to destroy that daughter. When a church, a family, where a godly man stands up for the truth that one man and one woman makes the only marriage acceptable to God, the world is angry. When we say that human life is sacred and to be cherished and defended at all costs, when we talk about the blessing of children because they're a heritage from the Lord, and his reward. When we desire to disciple our children in the ways of Christ, the world hates this stuff. They militate against it. And Jesus said, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And 1 John 3 says, Marvel not, my brethren. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. This isn't an excuse to us to be a real jerk and an extreme aggravation to the world. That's not an excuse to be a weirdo and say, well, I'm just a weird Christian 
But it is a call to come out of Babylon, to come out of the world system of today, to resist the pressure to conform. Now, what does it mean to come out and be separate? There was a false interpretation of this in the Middle Ages. What did they do? They, they, some of them sat up on poles for quite a few years. Others, they would live in these places that they called monasteries. First, they would live in these, in these caves, you know, hermits. And then they started all living in groups, like all the guys in this one and all the ladies in this one, and separating and being holy, they thought. What is wrong with that application? It looked holy to the people of their day. It looked separate. That's why Martin Luther tried to join one, and he did for quite some time. But they became seedbeds of iniquity, dens of wickedness, because you can't separate from your own sinful heart. The problem was, first of all, they didn't have the gospel. And second of all, they weren't following Christ in the way that he was calling us to. (laughs) Jesus in John 17 says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. In other words, he does want us to have interaction with the world. He does want us to have intercourse in the sense of communication and and relationship with the world, but not this close relationship defined by unequal yoking. So there is a relationship we have with the world. We are to be witnesses to the watching world. We are to be salt and light. And you can't be salt and light in a monastery. They'll look and they'll see the beautiful building and that's about all they see. Maybe they'll see the guy come out once in a while asking them for money and shaking the, you know, the, the basket. But Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. This is separation from the world. Keeping from the evil of the world. We can easily make our own little holy huddles and ignore the world around us. That is not what Paul is talking about. He said in Colossians 4, 5, walking in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. It could be also translated, making the most of every opportunity to witness to others. So what are we to separate from? The sins of the world, the wicked philosophies of the world, the loves of the world. John calls them lusts of the world. Desires and affections that replace God in our hearts and close our hearts to God. The ways of the world, the sinful culture and influence of the world, and ultimately the worship and the king of the world. In application, have you been living a separated life? Our hearts are the key. Where is your heart today? Is your heart open to God or is it narrow? Is it closed to God and His truth? God is calling for your heart. He's calling for you to give your heart to Him, to His Word, to Christ, and to His preachers. Are you making unequal yokes with the world? Examine your life. Is there some area of compromise that you have let your guard down in? Or that I have? Have you considered the vast difference between you 
and the world. Have you considered the glorious promises that God has given you in Christ? These should lead you to a holy life. Are you coming out of this world system? Are you coming out of Babylon and living a separate life? Not in a monastery, but are you staying away as best you can from the evil of this world? God has called you to it. Is this your life? And for those who do not know Christ, you might say, well, how does this apply to me? You can know the blessing of a separated life to Christ by trusting in Him today, turning from your sin, and giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, show us the ways in which we are compromising. Show me anything in my life. Show us all, Lord, things that we are doing that we should not be doing. Lord, show us where we are making unequal yokes with the world. And Lord, show us how we can come out and be more separate for you. Lord, help us not to run in the way of hiding ourselves from the world, but to be a light, a city on a hill that cannot be hid, shining forth the light of Christ. I pray your blessing upon each one. Help us as we go our ways. Bless the rest of the week. And pastors, he preaches on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Amen.